Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends. Nice to see you again, and by see you again, I mean that weird unidirectional podcast way. I feel the karma. No worries. I've been busy. Winter is coming. It's hot and sticky outside, but I know better. Winter is coming. I'm working on my wood pile for the fireplace and making ready for the snow and ice-filled nine months that are coming to New England. I love cutting firewood. You get yourself a nice big stick of red oak, you chew it up into bite-sized pieces with your chainsaw, and then you get to whack it repeatedly with a large pointy metal thing and stack it all up to dry. It's just a great combination of effort, utility, skill, and art. You should see me swing an axe in a mall. It's a thing of beauty. Big news this week is that I had my 90-day follow-up with Dr. Silver on Thursday. If you weren't paying attention, let me catch you up. I managed to give myself the gift of exercise-induced AFib, and they went into my heart after the Boston Marathon this year to perform some crafty medical shenanigans with the hope of fixing that. And it looks like they did. I ran an hour and 20-minute step-up run on Wednesday and was able to not only control my heart, in a hopeful, asymptomatic way, but also lay down some sweet paces that I haven't seen for over a year. I posted a YouTube video of these cardio results on my YouTube channel, at CYKT Russell, where I walk you through the Garmin output of that workout. If you're into that sort of thing, the young doctor also said, I don't have to take any more of that Xeralto blood thinner medication, which is a bonus considering how often I run into trees. This week, I have a conversation with a friendly physical therapist from Australia, Brad Beer. Brad is an accomplished runner and triathlete, and like many of us, he struggled with the question of why almost every runner, including me and probably you, gets injured. Why? And then... He decided to answer the next question, if you could, how would you prevent injury in runners? And Brad wrote a book that methodically strips down the source of running injuries, answers some of the hard questions, and tells you how to prevent them. Will we listen? Of course not. I should be doing my yoga right now. Instead, I'm doing this. (laughs) Seriously, 
It's a great reference work and a gift to all of us if we could manage to follow the advice. In section one, I'm going to give you a piece that talks about how all marathon plans have the same three elements in them. And if you understand these, you can understand the entire plan. In section two, I'll talk about awareness. I've had a busy, active, and wonderful couple of weeks. I've been working very hard on myself and taking some big risks for me to gain some transformational momentum in my life. It's tiring to step out of your comfort zone and force yourself through roadblocks and try things that you have no certainty with, but it's also exhilarating. Once you kick the chalk blocks out from under your wheels, much of the mental inertia falls away. Take my hand, my friends. Let's leap. On with the show. It's when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The three universal elements of any marathon training plan. If you've ever trained for a marathon, you may have noticed that they all have certain things in common. There's a core set of three elements that are in every good plan. And when you start to understand these three elements and why they are important, you can judge the applicability of that plan to your personal goals. What are the three universal elements of any training plan? Speed, tempo, and long. That's it. At the core of every marathon plan are these elements. And depending on your personal goal, the mix may be different, but they are the core of every training plan. They are at the base of all training plans, from amateurs to professionals since the beginning of the modern marathon training epic. If you look at an elite runner's plan, it will have these elements. If you look at how a Boston qualifier trains, the plan will have these elements. It's universal. If you understand this, you can build your own plan or better assess what plans are right for you. Beginner and novice plans may shift the balance all the way to zero tempo and zero speed, only focusing on gradually building up volume and distance with one weekly long run. The goal of these plans is just to finish so the plans have no speed or tempo. The beginner and novice plans are probably structured this way so people who are new to the sport don't get scared off or maybe to save them from too much intensity. But I would argue that even for beginners, a plan totally devoid of any hard efforts is denying them the benefits and knowledge of that hard effort. The beginner goal seems to be do as little work as possible to finish the race. Seems to me that this sells people short and denies them some key insights. Once you get up to the intermediate plans, you'll see the speed and tempo start to pop into the plans. Typically, the first manifestation of this is to load one hard session a week into the plan. And if you look at it, you're going to see that it essentially is a beginner plan with more weekly volume and one hard day per week. And this is better than no hard workouts, but because there is only one hard day a week, these intermediate plans tend to mix in a mind-numbing variety of speed, tempo, and specialty runs into that one day. So one week you might be doing 400, the so next maybe a fartlek, the next maybe some hills. It's a collection of a little bit of every type of speed and tempo, almost like a best of or a survey of hard workouts with a once-a-week appearance. It's a bit random, and it lacks consistency. You'll benefit from the weekly hard workout variety, but if your goal is time-based, 
If you're shooting for a time, you could use your time more efficiently. I would argue that this intermediate plan would actually be a great beginner plan. Give the new runners an introduction to the variety of workouts once a week. Let them feel some discomfort, know their body, learn something. It's certainly more interesting and engaging than the common beginner plan of run this week and then run more next week. Where you see the three core elements of a marathon training plan truly emerge are when you get into the advanced plans. Universally, these plans will have three quality, purposeful workouts per week, and these will take the form of speed, tempo, long. There are different cadences, but an example would be speed on Tuesday, tempo on Thursday, long on Sunday. What is speed? Speed work is done at a level of effort that is beyond your threshold. For a marathon, this might be one to two minutes per mile faster than your goal pace. Depending on your experience, this might be close to your 5K race pace. To keep it simple, on a scale of 0 to 5, with 0 being stopped and 5 being max effort, speed is at an effort of 4+. plus. Why do you want to run beyond your threshold? Speed work is super useful and critical if you want to run faster. It's like lifting weights. When you increase the weight, your muscles compensate by getting stronger. Speed work is the running equivalent of lifting those heavier weights. Speed work is strength training. Your body adapts to speed work by getting physically stronger in the legs and building more capacity in your cardiovascular system. Your heart gets stronger, your lungs get stronger, your body gets better at moving blood and oxygen to the muscles. Mentally, speed work gives you the confidence that you can run hard and recover. You learn to deal with discomfort, how to sublimate that discomfort and focus on the task at hand, which is racing. So why not just do all speed work if it's so good for you? Well, speed work is not sustainable. By definition, you're running beyond your threshold. That's why the distances are typically shorter, 400s, 800s, 1600s. You will not ever actually race at this pace in your marathon, If all you did was speed work, you'd be very fast, but only for a short distance, and then you would crash once you burned up all your available resources. In order to run a long race at a fast pace, you need speed work, but in order to cover the distance, you need tempo and long. What is tempo? A tempo pace is a pace right at or just below your threshold, not over it. On a scale of 0 to 5, tempo effort would be a 3 to 4. For a marathon, this would be anywhere from race pace to maybe a minute, even a minute faster than race pace, somewhere in that zone. Tempo runs are longer than the speed workouts. Tempo runs, as part of your training plan, can get up to half marathon or so in distance. The elites will take these tempo runs up to 20 miles. For amateurs, a typical tempo outing might be 4 to 8 miles. So why do you need tempo? Tempo simulates the kind of effort your body will need in a long race. Long periods of sustained efforts at threshold. Not too fast, not too slow, just right sustained effort. Over the course of a training plan, consistent tempo work will actually move your threshold. You will be able to run longer at a faster pace. This is how your body adapts to tempo. Tempo is a great physical and mental trainer of pace. 
Have you ever had the experience of going out too fast and crashing at the end of a race? We all have. Tempo training will help you lock into a pace, a sustainable race pace, early. Tempo will give you pace discipline, awareness, and efficiency. Speed makes you faster. Tempo makes it sustainable. What is long? Well, there's no mystery to long runs as part of any training plan. Even the beginner plans have a long run. Traditionally, the long run peaks around 20 miles in a marathon plan because someone, at some point in time, arbitrarily thought that was a good number. Some plans go more, some plans go less. Most plans have the long run at, you know, 30 seconds to a minute slower than your target race pace. And why do you need a long run? Well, the point of the long run is not pace, but time and distance. The long run gets you used to time and distance. The long run trains your body to keep moving forward for longer than it wants to, and your body adapts by learning how to burn secondary fuel sources like fat and keep on racing, keep on going. And mentally, the long run gives you the confidence that you can go the distance. So what's missing? Like the donut hole... The big piece that's missing from a plan with these three elements is the rest and recovery. You can't go hard every day. That's why even the advanced plans only have three quality workouts a week. Your body doesn't get faster during the speed work. Your body gets faster during the recovery after the speed work when it adapts to the effort. Same with tempo, same with long. Without the rest and recovery, your body breaks down instead of improving. The other piece missing is the cross-training, stretching, and other basic maintenance that your body requires in order to be able to perform these quality workouts consistently and make it to the starting line. Speed, tempo, long. Every good marathon and half-marathon plan will have the elements of speed, tempo, and long. Practitioners have learned over the last 50 years that these elements of the plan complement each other and produce the strongest race results. Like any other practice, it is in the consistent performance of these workouts week after week that drives the improvement in your strength, speed, efficiency, and endurance. You can't just throw a hard workout in every so often and expect improvement or adaptation. You have to be consistent. When you are looking for or building your own training plan, don't get confused by all the different workouts and options. They all fall under the same three elements. You got hills on the calendar, that's the type of speed work. You got fast finish runs, that's tempo. Fartleks, that's tempo again. 400s, that's speed work. So once you understand the purpose of the workout, you can adapt the plan to suit your own personal goals. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Brad Beer, how are you doing? G'day, Chris. Very well, thank you. Give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do. Chris, I'm a, uh, I'm a physiotherapist as of 2015, uh, an author of a book, um, You Can Run Pain-Free, and also, Chris, uh, the founder of a physio practice known as Pogo Physio here in Australia, and um, I started physiotherapy uh, eight or nine years ago now and uh, in practice. Uh, straight out of university, opened a practice, and over that duration, I've delivered, uh, it turns out to be, in excess of around 25,000 physiotherapy consultations, and specifically work with people who like to perform at their physical best, and that includes certainly a, a whole lot of runners of all ages, 
shapes and uh, and ambitions. So really, these days work specifically with with the performers. So are you a runner? Yes, I'm an avid runner. Uh, came from a junior triathlon background and. Uh, actually, will be over in the U.S. in November for the New York Marathon. So you wrote this book, right? Uh, you can run pain-free because you're a physio and you see a lot of runners, so you get a good uh, survey of all the different injuries that we get. And, you know, you always read that survey that they always quote that 85% of runners get injured, you know, every year or something crazy like that. They always use the same survey numbers, and it's something really high like that that basically says, Runners get injured, you know? Of course, there's no detail around that data. It's just one of those sensational headlines. Um, but, of course, I've been injured. You've been injured. We've all been injured. And so you really sat down and wrote out a sort of a Tim Noakes-type tome on how to not get injured and, if you do get injured, how to manage that? Correct, Chris. That's right, Yes. I can't say I read it start to finish, but I, I paged through it and looked at all the sections, and it's very, very detailed, right? So it goes into all the detailed things around injury, because when you start with injury, thing that we understand is that you can't always attribute it to a specific causation. Sometimes, or most of the time, it's not a specific cause and effect. It's a bunch of things, right? And they each affect in different ways. So what, what have you found in terms of, you know, the causation of injuries? There's a lot there. I wrote the book to um, really give runners hope that it is possible. And at a visceral level, I, I truly believe that every runner can experience injury-free running and therefore faster running as a result. And, you know, obviously that's uh, – there's – listeners that may have pre-existing conditions and even those listeners can certainly manage manage their condition to to enjoy you know a better quality of pain-free uh, injury-free running but in terms of uh, what I've found with injury causation you, you spot on the tendency and the and the wish I guess of a lot of injured runners is to attribute that injury causation Chris to one isolated factor <laughs> and uh, right. well, that would be very nice for the practitioner and the patient alike or the injured runner alike the reality is as you touched on Chris that it's multifactorial in its causation so I liken it to uh, baking a cake if we think of baking a cake we um, you know we recognize that you need you know ingredient A, B, C and D in the right mix and the outcome is you get a cake and in this analogy if you throw in enough of this and enough of that and a little bit of that, um, we're likely that at some point you're going to develop an injury. And the other thing that you touch on in your in your work is is combining or understanding the emotional impact of injuries for runners, and that's something that a lot of physio underplay if they're not runners because they don't realize how devastating it is to be in week nine or ten of a marathon program with your target race, you know, a month away or three weeks away and all of a sudden have a, an injury, right? It's just emotionally devastating and it's also at the hardest point in the training program. Yep, I agree, Chris. And, uh, you know, uh, certainly in practice, one of the, the questions that I like to ask an injured runner is and arguably I believe the most important question is, you know, 
runner, Chris, how's this making you feel? And at that point, I normally zip my lips, sit back and give them full time to reflect and and actually express how they're feeling. And it's probably no surprise to you or I or all your listeners that um, the response is often through a uh, through a myriad of tears. So um, absolutely, the you know the fear of not being able to take part or the fear of what the injury means uh, can, can be combined with the anxiety around things such as will I ever be able to run again or what does this mean to my ability to compete in an event um, through to um, you know the frustration that we experience when we just find we can't running the event that we wanted so um or train for that matter or just get out there daily or however however often it, it is just to um to experience the, the many benefits that we know come from running so how do you talk them down off that ledge is it simply just letting them talk and moving it into the you know out of the dinosaur brain into the uh cognitive brain yeah it's uh it's 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 really i guess just giving them a vision and a sense of hope and that's not uh, empty hope, Chris. That's hope based on the, the you know, the five-step framework that I outline in detail in, in the book, You Can Run Pain-Free. It's, so I guess I, I, I really um, find that, you know, once hope's reinstated and they've got a timeline to work towards, a realistic timeline, then um, that's all they're after. And also just acknowledging the fact that, one, you understand how they're feeling and certainly from my many years of competing 10 years as a junior triathlete and also as a um you know as an age group athlete from my uh late or mid 20s onwards I'm 34 now I can uh, speak from experience so yeah you talk about the five major elements you need to work on if you were to start with injuries or even just prevent being injured the understand your body work on your form right yes <laughs> figure out how to Answer the unanswerable shoe question, which, by the way, is the number one question I've always been asked as well. Yes. And then you devote a whole uh, step or a whole section on hips, which is pretty interesting. So mm -hmm. I want to talk about that. And then uh, rest, you know, um, how to recover, which is something runners don't do well. <laughs> yes, they're the five steps, Chris, absolutely. So how did you pick these five out of all the hundreds of other things you could uh, talk about? Yeah, great question, Chris. Those five or the five steps that you just outlined there were really the subconscious framework that I'd used on reflection to treat the thousands of runners that I had treated So um, over the years. So when I sat back and started writing this manuscript, I, um, I realized that they were the, the steps I'd followed and and specifically, uh, why those five when there's potentially so many? I actually really do believe that if those five are followed, then all the other two or three percenters, you know, don't make too great a difference. So it starts with understanding the running body um, and, and working from there. It is in sequential order. Um, and the basis is really getting that running body uh, knowledge and appreciation of each individual's idiosyncrasies, um, starting with what I, I term, Chris, understanding whether you're a flippy floppy or stiffy as a runner. And that just is a bit of lighthearted um, uh, description of people's natural genetic 
status regarding their mobility. So some people are more mobile than others, and that has a huge determinant on their likelihood of uh, developing injury or not. Yep. And, you know, it's it's great, but I think a lot of times you're going to find that you're going to get people who are injured, who are, you know, maybe well into their running career, where you then have to sort of wind them backwards, right? Mm Mm-hmm. To yeah. look at the, to you know, get them back to form or back to hips. Yeah, it's, it's so true, Chris. I mean, um, you know, we both know, I'm sure, runners you know, have been running for decades. And I see it as a real privilege and, and great opportunity. And I'm certainly a, um, a physiotherapist who, who understands the psyche of runners and so as a result, I, um, you know, you pick your personality and you pick your approach and, uh, and you work through each of the steps. And, you know, the encouraging thing is, Chris, people can see meaningful change around these five steps. You know, changing a, a long-standing runner's technique, step two certainly can, can potentially take the longest there. But as for the other steps, we can get breakthrough fairly quickly, sometimes in as little as, you know, two to six weeks. So, um, you know, so it's I see it as a great opportunity. But, yes, also a diplomatic and sensitive conversation around some um, some habits that have been there for many years. <laughs> Yeah, and you take some some courage, Brad, to answer the uh, the shoe question. Yes, because because uh, you know that that's that's a religious argument um, these <laughs> days, or it always has been, I guess. Yeah. You know, we have the 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 barefoot people and all that stuff, and you can go round and round in circles on that. But you do a good job of saying, you know, there's some basic different foot types. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you either have high arches or you don't. You know, that's a fact. Yep. Right, and you got to know that for what your, you know, what that that'll determine what type of shoes you have. You have right, yep, absolutely, or, or an attribute of them. Right, if you get your form right, then a lot of the other stuff kind of sorts itself out. Unless you have something that's just wrong, you know, mechanically. Like I've seen some people who run sort of um, pigeon-footed or you know, swing one foot way out to the side. And again, but those are form issues. Mm-hmm. Those aren't shoe issues. Yep. So a lot of times the shoes, if you you, know, you you see somebody come into your into your practice and they're they're wearing a big bulky pair of control shoes, I mean, do the alarms go off in your head? Yeah, Chris, this is such a, as you say a topical topical area, isn't it? It's uh, it's it's likely to be in our lifetimes a an ever a changing landscape and um, a debate that is divisive <laughs> for, for, forever. And so certainly as, as a physiotherapist who works specifically with runners, yes, you do sometimes see uh, injured runners. Immediately, it looks like they're mismatched with what they're in footwear-wise. And, you know, as you, you touched on there, it's it's uh, shoe selections, a, um, often a personal sort of choice for people. You've got, you know, your minimalist camps and then you've got now your maximalist camps and everything in between. And then you've got the confused runner who sits in the middle and just can't make sense of it. So really, you know, my purpose in, in, in including this as step three of the five steps in injury-free running was to give people a, a simplified version of how to interpret everything that goes on. Right. Right. So take what kind of foot you have and sort of translate that into a, a category of shoes. Yeah. Get you close. Get yeah. You close. And you know, there's I had six frame, uh, six selection criteria in the book, which I actually spent quite a quite a many hour um, researching um, from the best sports medicine 
um, in most current sports medicine literature that was available. And, you know, the funny thing, Chris, that it came back to was the number one selection criteria for, for an appropriate pair of shoes was comfort. <laughs> so yeah. if it feels good, it's probably going to be good for you. And um, yeah. and so you know, I as you said, I, um, you mentioned there, Chris. Um, you know, get your form right. And a lot of the time, your shoe selection um, is 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 a bit less crucial. I find so many runners, Chris, look to shoes as the holy grail to sort any injuries and to you know to, to make them faster and everything else. When unfortunately, it's just not not true. If a runner doesn't work on their body first, gets their body run ready gets their technique sound or their form right, then um, then yes, putting the, ex- the shoes on that are correct can just be like icing on the cake. Yeah, and the shoes become less important if you've got the other stuff sorted out. Yeah, absolutely. Form before footwear, I say, Chris. Exactly. Form before footwear. I like that. So if you, you, you spend a whole section talking about hips, which was interesting to me, but when you say hips, you know, when I was reading through it, you're really talking about core and stability, not just hips, right? So it's not like you're talking the whole chapter about uh, about you know how to stretch out your hip flexors. It's more the importance of core and stability. And you could almost put that in front of the shoe selection as well, right? Because that's another form thing, right? Yeah, you, so tr- it's so true. I um, you know I debated the order there, and arguably could have sat as number three and the shoes as number four. Uh, I put the shoes first ahead of it, actually, Chris, because it's just so topical, and sometimes uh, people just need to get that resolved to feel a sense of comfort um, in terms of their shoe selection. But you're right, Chris. Um, hips are really you know related to core stability. However, I've found over the years as a practitioner and as a runner and athlete competitor alike that um, a lot of the times the and sadly so some of the key muscles that do constitute you know the core as we know it are neglected and so you know they're things like the the, the deep hip external rotators without getting too um, physio specific here but they're a group of muscles that sit underneath the, the glute max and, and they help to counter or um, or control the amount of dropping of the pelvis as we land, basically. And um, and Chris, they are just so fundamental to, to injury-free running and faster running, for that matter. So hence why I called the step uh, the importance of hip stability. Um, I'm yet to meet a running injury that doesn't normally have a component of hip stability as one of those factors that we spoke about earlier that's been driving a runner's injury or dysfunction. So a lot, a lot of times when we get to this point, you know, you're going to recommend some sort of exercise or stretching or strengthening or balance routine to uh, to stabilize that stuff, um, not just to fix bad points, but to maintain and create good points, right? Preventative wise. So what are what are like the top two, three, four, five exercises or prescriptions you have to to get the hips right? The bulk of the hip stability work is, as the name suggests, related to strength uh, work, strength training. And uh, really the strength training is through three phases, muscle activation, muscle strength, and then muscle endurance. And so um, that's dependent on how many repetitions or how many sets someone will do. But um, specifically to answer your question, um, 
you know, my top three uh, strength exercises for runners' hips um, are an exercise uh, or exercises I call the hip external rotations, which all of these, Chris, uh, there's videos for on the resources page of, uh, of our website if listeners wanted to jump over there or I could possibly share the link with you for your your direct um, sharing of the video. But um, so they're all there easily viewable. But hip rotations um, can be done laying off a bed and lifting the leg up and down. Um, We need 100 repetitions in a row, which some runners initially go, oh, my gosh, are you serious? Um, And when we talk about cadence of, you know, somewhere between 80, 90 sort of steps a minute on each leg, the runners out there running five for an hour, that's 5,400 times they're asking those muscles to work. So um, 100 reps in comparison is not a lot, but it is enough. So that's the hip rotations. And second would be some what I call fire hydrants, which if a runner can, if a listener, I should say, can picture a, uh, a dog doing its business on a on a fire hydrant, then you've probably got a fairly good idea of, uh, of the leg position, which is great for yep. those side stability muscles. I, I know exactly which one that is. Yeah, cool. And so if you think of the dog with a bent leg, if the runner simply straightens their leg out and then lifts it up and down without their foot hitting the ground or the floor, then they'll be activating glute medius. And I like runners to get up to 50 of those continuous, particularly if they're taking on a longer event, like a half marathon through to a marathon. And uh, thirdly, Chris, would, would be you know single leg bridges, Runner laying on their back, simply lifting their bottom up and down, um, mm-hmm. and the you know that's for glute max, the, you know the muscles that we're, I suspect you might be sitting on sitting, um, that uh, we're sitting on at the moment. And there's a whole continuum of glute max exercises that crescendo, if you like, with the uh, single leg sit to stands, which is uh, a good little test for your listeners. Uh, you know, once they uh, get home from their run, if they're out there running and listening to this show. Um, to go from sitting to standing off a chair on one leg, a lower chair, and uh, and try and do that a dozen times on each side. It's, uh, it's you know, two or three sets of that. It's a, my arguably my favourite, most time-efficient way for runners to get their hips in shape quick. And if they do that, so what's that do for you on your uh, you know on your run? How do, how does that manifest as improvement? Yeah, great. It, it, what it means, it safeguards Chris against the pelvis or the hips um, collapsing on the stance leg as a runner impacts the ground. So it can be at times quite alarming for the runner when we do some video analysis. And this can be even done by you know a running friend just standing behind someone and running um, and filming them as they run or jumping behind them if they can get them on a treadmill um, and slow mowing it. Um, the footage, it's quite alarming how much the hips do collapse under the body weight of the runner. And you know at, at a minute of recording a video, it's uh, quite obvious, let alone after someone's fatigued an hour into a run or in some you know races two, three, four hours into it. So. By taking that drop out of the pelvis, the runner reduces their loading on their limbs and hence their injury risk. And the other mm. nice bit, which is more exciting for the injury stuff, is that um, is that the runners inevitably get a lot faster because they're not having to take as long for each step uh, to control that right. that pelvis. Right. So if so, to to visualize this, if you're watching somebody running from behind, when that leg impacts. You'll actually see the the hip or the the buttock there 
sort of compress down and shift all the way down like it's compressing like it's a like it's a shock absorber and if and that's if you don't have the conditioning in the hip right if you do have the conditioning in the hip it'll it'll be pretty solid and it'll bounce right out right chris great think of a uh, you know a catwalk model when they walk um they let their hips collapse and fling out to the side you know that's what they're trying to achieve it's an unnatural movement it's exaggerated in that case but if someone pitches that that sort of movement of the pelvis you you know you're on the right track and conversely if you think of uh you know these elite runners that run at the front of the the marathon or you know take the olympic medals you know we can all picture them we've all seen them i liken them to almost boxes uh, on legs, that is, that their top half barely moves. It is so right. stable. It's like a bike right. almost. All that's moving is their right. legs turning over underneath them. So, you know, very efficient. Absolutely. You know, you got your Galen Roots obviously over there in the US, and um, you know, and Alberto Salazar and his team work so heavily on their strength and conditioning of their pelvis um, predominantly. And there's a reason for that, and that's what we're speaking about now. Yeah, so you're translating that into forward motion instead of up and down motion, and it's uh, it's much more efficient. And sideways motion, and that's yeah. well, well and, summarized. And I would think this is probably more pronounced in women who tend to have a, a wider hip set. I'm not being sexist; it's just a physical thing, and they tend to get more um, ITB uh-huh. on the outsides of the the, the legs uh, because of that, because that's connected up to the hip, right? Chris, you're spot yep. on. Yep, you're spot yep. on. So one thing that's um, that's kind of missing here is uh, you didn't talk about nutrition much. Did you do that on purpose? Yeah, Chris, um, I didn't touch on nutrition. I um, certainly, you know, absolutely a big area for runners, and that was a conscious decision. One, because I wanted to try and keep the steps for you can run pain-free, you know, to, to no more than five not just because it's the trend or the vogue, but just that it's achievable that way for people. And while nutrition affects everything that we do, it, it didn't actually make my top five when it comes to preventing and rehabilitating injuries for runners. Certainly would make my top five in terms of, um, you know, the effect it has on performance, but specifically yeah. for injury, I I, I personally couldn't rate it in that top five. And uh, incidentally, my wife in Australia here, uh, Christina, she's a um, an integrative or a holistic uh, medical doctor. And so um, I uh, would much prefer to defer to Christina's expert knowledge <laughs> as opposed to my uh, more physiotherapy injury um, focused knowledge. So. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the soreness and the pain and just the recovery stuff is really nutrition-related. Um, and uh, probably not the direct injury, though, you know? Although yeah. I found that it, the, the cleaner I'm eating, the less sore I am and the le- and less niggles I have, right? It's another one of those religious uh, controversies, too, so I stay away from it. <laughs> oh, it's a big space, isn't it? It's uh, We spoke about the, the bigness of the the shoe world and the, you know, um, the debates that rage there and, you know, arguably you've got a bigger space now with, uh, with, with food and, and race nutrition, don't we? So it's, uh, it's a big area. Yeah. I think we can flip that over and say, there's just still a lot of opportunity. We don't know everything. We don't, we're not even close to knowing everything. And so it's good for people to, yeah. to feel around the edges and see if there's something new to be learned. Yeah, I agree. 
So as we move you towards the exit here, Brad, what what are the links? How can people find you, find your book, uh, you know, see your videos, that sort of stuff? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, well, look, the book's available on uh, Amazon. So uh, if listeners jump over and search for You Can Run Pain-Free, they will uh, readily locate the book on Amazon for either print-on-demand in the U.S. or um, worldwide on, um, on Kindle versions. Uh, if the listeners are wanting uh, or uh, looking specific for resources around the book, such as videos and, um, and other uh, helps that are referenced in the book, they can jump over to Pogo, P-O-G-O, pogophysio.com.au, all one word, and they'll easily locate the running tab there. And there's a whole bunch of resources in there, including uh, blog posts that relate to running injuries and prevention uh, and running faster. I'm also on uh, Twitter, at Brad underscore beer, that's B-E-E-R, and um, found um, on, uh, on just a basic Google search as well. Just type in Brad Beer Physio and, and you'll find, um, find the, the resources relating to, to this. All right. Well, thanks for the chat. Sorry you had to get up so uh, early. Oh, Chris, uh, th- thank you for the opportunity, and, uh, and I really do commend you. We were having a brief chat before we jumped on air, and um, and you've been doing this consistently for many years now. And um, so, mate, I just commend you for the, the great work you're doing, and you know, uniting runners around the, the passion that we have. And uh, mate, I would uh, get up every morning of the week to speak to someone like yourself around this topic. And incidentally, I'll uh, after this head out for my run myself. Well, so. Uh so I, I I don't know if you're awake or not. I I'll I'll will I'll, I'll test you. All right, you ready? Yes. <laughs> Aussie Aussie Aussie. Oh my! Oi oi oi! There you go. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, man. We'll see ya. Thanks, Chris. All right, bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Awareness. In, then out. I got into Atlanta early afternoon last week. After I wrapped up my calls at the end of the business day, I went for an easy run down Peachtree. The sticky weather had been blown dry by a high-pressure front, and even though it was still in the 90s, it was pleasant. Peachtree from Buckhead towards downtown is a main thoroughfare, and in the early afternoon there is plenty of traffic, both foot and car. As I passed people, I put on a big smile and I tried to make eye contact and maybe even say hello or a cheery good afternoon. And when the cars paused their frenetic machinations to let me cross, I would smile and say thank you. Usually, in the somber darkness of the early mornings, I don't get these opportunities for interaction. As a result, I'm lost in my own thoughts. And when I'm out in these early morning runs, I'm not very aware of the space I'm passing through. I'm too tied up in my own mind or the podcast I'm listening to. I'm inward-focused. On the sunny and populated sidewalks of the mid-afternoon... I expanded my awareness to take in the people in the cars and on the street and make a connection with them. At least that's what I tried to do. So what's the difference? Why do you care? Because when you're wrapped up in your own brain, you're in a closed-loop system. You aren't allowing any external input or any opportunities for feedback. And without that feedback, your self-awareness is stilted. You can only learn what you already know. You're trapped in a box of your own construction. 
When you expand your awareness and solicit feedback, you now have unique input from external sources and have an opportunity to learn something new. When you expand your awareness, you open that box to the awareness of others. You let their light in. Everyone you pass on the street has their own story playing in their heads. They're tied up in it. They are scared and harried and caught up in that internal story. Their awareness is stilted. It's a closed-loop system that feeds on itself, reinforcing the neuroses. Looking inward is not necessarily a bad thing if you do it right. If you simply tune into the story and get carried away and subsumed by the flood of your own noise, it does you no good. It just removes you from the world. But if you can look inside your head with a third-person detachment and observe what's going on without getting involved, you can learn something. You can take a spanner to the controls and adjust things to remove the noise and find some clarity. Once you have some semblance of clarity, some semblance of self-awareness, you can crawl out of your box and look around. You can expand that healthy awareness outward and add the awareness of others to your treasures. So try this. Try sitting or even moving and watch your own mind and thought processes with an attitude of detachment. See what you can learn. Then take that detachment into your next stressful meeting or emotional family interaction and see what you can observe. Have you ever heard someone referred to as unflappable in the face of a stressful situation? That person has mastered detachment. That person may or not be self-aware, but they do know how to remove their intellect from the emotional stew of their environment. I was amazed at how much I saw when I ran down Peachtree in the hot August afternoon. As I smiled into car windshields, whole stories unfolded around me. I could sense and see the people in their lives. Try it. Take some time for yourself and see if you can find that self-awareness. Take that third-person detachment into your life, and then let the light of others shine through. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. That was a good one, bud. That's it, my friends. You have made it to the end of August. And the end of episode 4-319 of the Run Run Live podcast. Good luck to all those crazy bastards running the Leadville 100 this weekend. Earn those buckles, my friends. My buddy Tom rode the mountain bike version of this a couple weeks ago. Get his buckle. So kiss the llamas for me. I'm heading off for some vacation and the Hood to Coast Relay next weekend. I managed to pull something in my calf this week, so I'm going to sit out a couple days, but I should be okay for next week. Sounds like we're running an ultra team, and I'm probably the slowest person on that team. Should be fun. Still time to give me some cash for my charity, if you can. Put me over the top. The week after that, September 6th, is the Wapak Trail Race, and I hope to see some of you up there. Then, I think, given that my heart seems to be kind of fixed... I may have to train for my 50th marathon and put that BQ beatdown on it. Huh? What do you think? Never know. Never say never. I've been participating in the vlog, video log, every day in August with the Zen Runner. So if you want to see my ugly, hairy mug, you can search on Zen Veda. Or just go to my YouTube channel. See why KT Russell. Winter is coming. I'm starting my beard. 
and it's coming in quite gray. But hey, I'm happy to have any hair at all. <laughs> so let me tell you a story. When I was young, I always wanted to be a writer. Ever since I was a kid, I knew I had a gift with words. But, you know, I was married, I had a full-time job, was working, owned a house, all by the age of 22, so there wasn't much room to indulge in recreational writing. But I told myself, I said, I'll start working on it as soon as I have a place to write. You know, I need an office and a computer. I couldn't do it. I made up all these barriers to the act of writing. I needed a place to write. I needed a computer. So at one point, I actually ended up building an office in the basement of the second house that I owned. But besides a few fitful chapters, that book never got written. And you know what? I'm still writing that novel in my head. And you know why? Because having a place to write and having a computer had nothing to do with it. I was afraid to write. And this thing that had built up in my head as uniquely mine became such a big thing, I couldn't do it. To try to do it would be to risk failure, and to fail would take away that special dream. And I'm still writing that book in my head, and maybe it'll make it to the light of day this year, or maybe next. People disparage hope like that, right? That's hope. But I think sometimes hope is the only thing that keeps us alive, keeps us future-based and moving forward. And you remember when Pandora opened the box, all the bad things that came out to inflict pain on mortals, there was one thing that came out too that keeps us going, and that was hope. Recently, they uncovered a Greek city in Turkey where a man named Diogenes had written all of his thoughts on philosophy, on the philosophy of Epicurean thought, and he wrote them on an 80-meter-long, 12-foot-high you know, tall wall that stood in the city of Onion, I don't know, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, in Lycia, modern-day Turkey. Now, that's a great example of putting yourself out there for everyone to see, right? Just write it all down on a wall, <laughs> carve it in stone. What gift for the world do you have trapped in your head because you're too afraid to bring it into being? Maybe it's time for you to build your Epicurean wall. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Good dog. Good boy, buddy.